Well, I'm ready for my close-up with a director of photography in a feature length who's round. Um, it's a year ago to the day since I became ill enough to be spending Christmas feeling sorry for myself and on Twitter where somebody set me a task to interview everyone from Doctor Who. I haven't done that. What I have done is interviewed somebody from every story, bar five, and I'm about to make that four. Uh, I worked on the DVD of this story. I could have got somebody from that, but I didn't want to. I wanted to interview somebody that we'd not spoken to. So I'm going to ask this gentleman to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Uh, my name is Paul Wheeler. Um, my visiting card says Director of Photography, which is a posh name for a cameraman. In my BBC days, I was just a cameraman. Um, extraordinarily lucky. A uh, little bit of background, if you want it. Yes, um, absolutely. At nine years old, I decided to be a cameraman. Uh, the family were a bit in the business, not on the, the studio floor. At 12 years old, I decided to be a BBC cameraman. And at 32 years old, I became one. And... Uh, about eight years later, of the 63 cameramen at the BBC, um, they decided to go back to the concept of having what was always referred to as the Big Six, a core of excellence, they referred to it as, in their grey suits, in, by the, they become by then. Uh, and I became a senior film cameraman at the BBC before I resigned and went freelance, very, very sadly, because I'd loved my time at the Beeb. Um, simply because I wanted to advance my career and specialise in drama rather than be a general cameraman who did quite a bit of drama. Uh, and in those years in the BBC, I did absolutely everything. Um, and a lot of Doctor Who. Yes. Which was great fun. Well, shall we start with Doctor Who then? Right. Um, so what was, your, what was your first introduction to the show? Well, I was an assistant cameraman uh, on the first ones. And we all... Great gang of us trolled down to the country um, and as a junior assistant I was sent down with the Land Rover with a load of gear in the back uh, and we all billeted in hotels got up in the morning and there was four inches of snow um, so the, the manor house we were going to use was on the top of a hill and mine was the only vehicle that would get up there so I spent the whole morning shepherding people up and down and we finally got everybody to the top of the hill we congregated in this wonderful um Salon, you can't call it a lounge, it was a salon with wonderful mullioned windows looking out over the, the green sward, which we'd call a lawn, but you know, and, and much consternation. You can see the black cloud over the director's head because there's four inches of snow on the lawn and it's supposed to be Doctor and Heatway. And everybody's trying to work out what the flipping heck to do. And uh, the Lord of the Manor trolls in behind, you know, with a couple of dogs and, you know, and we're all going, oh yeah, okay, right. And he sort of shuffles up to the worried group and says, um, what's, what's, what's the matter here, boy? And they say, well, it, it's supposed to be Doctor and Heatway and it's covered in snow. Said, oh, that's a problem, is it? Said, yeah, just a bit. And he trolled off and I thought, that was a bit rude. Um, but I got it completely wrong. Because 20 minutes later, he trolled off and he's found his sort of ret ancient retainers. And while the, the brains are still fretting over what to do, six guys with broad brooms start crossing the lawn and sweeping <laughs> the snow away. How lucky can you get? Brilliant. <laughs> the guy was a fan. Excellent. Never told anybody. And he thought, oh, well, what can we do? Get the snow away. And, you know, 
by lunchtime, the sun had come out a bit, and because it was now not four inches of snow, but a light dusting, two o'clock in the afternoon, we could shoot. Bless the man. Excellent. Bless the man. Well, he surely qualifies for a BBC pension. Well, or at least a Blue Peter badge. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was probably the earliest one, um, as, a, as a young oik, mm-hmm. uh, just observing the brains doing their stuff. Yeah, and this is where you learn your ropes, I guess. That's yeah. Job in, in the BBC, it was, it, was, it was an incredible schooling. I mean, I, I went in at 18 as a trainee projectionist. Within two and a half years, I'd managed to become a trainee assistant cameraman and just worked my way up. I, I was very, very lucky. When I was a pro- prodgy, there was an opportunity to go to Lime Grove with the current affairs unit in the dubbing theatre. Because in those days, the projection box had sort of, you know, three projectors and eight film playback units, um, one of which could become a recorder. And you, you literally played back all the soundtracks off 35mm magnetic track. So the projection box was quite a busy, important place in laying soundtracks in those days, which, of course, now you all do on a timeline on a laptop. Mm-hmm. And, and better, but and without four guys in the projection box trying to do it. Um, but the great thing about that was it, it was a two-on, two-off sh- shift. So you worked two 12-hour days, and then you had two days off. So I... I inveigled my way on to that so that my two days off I would go back to Ealing Studios and I'd just find a camera crew early in the morning and say can I come out and be helpful and by the time I applied for the job as a trainee most of the cameramen thought I was one because right. I'd been out with them so much I mean you could do that in those days you didn't have to sort of sign a chit to say I'm on the insurance list you know it was just a wonderful opportunity I mean just wonderful and ground my way through up to the big six yeah, absolutely staggering. I mean, how lucky can a man get? Well, who who were the practitioners that you 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 would say you learnt from particularly then on your way out? I think there were probably, oh, David Prosser looked after me like a father. Brian Tafana, the youngest man ever to be made up to a BBC cameraman, I was his assistant three times. He fortunately. Um, was quite firm with me when I needed to be firm, but very very kind. And then, I mean, I, I, could, I could list, there were 63 of them, you know. Mm. But then right at the end uh, of my time as an assistant, I was put with the man who was considered the BBC senior cameraman, you know, senior of seniors, which was Tubby Englander, Mr. Mm. A.A. A. Englander. Uh, and for the first six weeks, we, we sort of, you know, walked around each other like a couple of cats on heat and didn't really get on. Then one morning, my car wouldn't start, and I managed to ring him in the camera room and say, Tubby, I've got a problem. I'll get a cab to the location. Can you possibly meet me there? And he said, no. And the, 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 the way Tubby used to say no made the hairs on the back of your neck go up and your heart go cold. Um, I'll pick you up. That's why we're always 30 minutes early. And I thought, that's amazing. I don't know why, but I just didn't expect it. Mm-hmm. It changed my complete view and we spent two and a half years together having the most wonderful time. He was well, I mean, he's, he's, he had some sort of trademarks with his Doctor Who's. He always seemed to shoot the monsters yeah. in front of the sun. Yeah. And so you got the, the, the light of the sun. That, I think that's where I nicked it from. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm known for working into the sun, and I'm sure I stole it from Tubby. <laughs> um, but then, you know, by that time I was a fairly senior assistant. Mm-hmm. And... Um, 
they sort of hauled me in the office and said, look, Tubby's retiring in six months' time and the summer's coming up. You could get a lot of work as what they call an acting cameraman. When cameramen went on their summer holidays, you could stand in as an assistant be acting as the cameraman. And I said, no. No. The, the, the thing Tubby hates most in his whole life is changing his assistant. He's done 24 years with the BBC. I'm going to see him to the last day. I went, you sure? I went, yes. He'd been wonderful to me. You know, don't, don't give him that upheaval in his last six months of his career with the Beeb, for God's sake. I, I wasn't doing it out of any generosity. I was doing it for what I considered a friend. Mm-hmm. By then, we'd become, you know, friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so I literally, the morning of his retirement, the Friday he retired, just the day before his 60th birthday, because that was the rule in the BBC, you had to retire at 60. What a terrible waste of talent. I put his camera away, locked up the locker and took the key into the camera department, put it on the desk and said, I'll see you at Tubby's retirement party at lunchtime. And the head of department at the time made this very nice speech to Tubby and at the end said, Tubby, I hope, I hope you don't mind. We've had a rather sudden retirement. Uh, would you mind incorporating it into your retirement party? Tubby always swore he knew nothing about this, which has to be the only time in his life he ever lied. I, and, and he said... Um, and Tubby said, no, 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 of course do I. And, you know, stroked his moustache, as he was famous for. If you've ever seen him, you'd know he always mm. did the military moustache number. And head of department took a, the famous brown envelope out of his inside pocket and said, Paul, we're retiring you. You are now a cameraman. Oh, wow. Probably the only time in my life I couldn't speak. Um, I mean, brilliant. That was a beeb in those days. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm going a little bit... Um, you eyed on that one. Oh, well, so am I, and I wasn't there. <laughs> it was just such a lovely thing to do. Yeah, extraordinary. Well, aside from him as a, as, as a character, then, what do you think it was about him as a cameraman that made him so good? What were his working methods that... He was... There was... He had a sort of slightly military bearing, and, and that was slightly his approach. Um, if you could cope with that, you then got the other side of the military ethic, which is that he looked after his team beautifully. I mean, he would, if any of us made a cock up, as long as it didn't actually sort of damage anybody, Tubby would go to the director or producer and explain the situation. He wouldn't expect us to do it. He was responsible for us. And once you've seen him do that a couple of times, you think, my God, this is a good boss. This is the kind of boss I want to work for. You know, you would explain to him what had happened. He would go and say, my responsibility, I run the crew, he was very precise. I cannot... I mean, my, my brain, because I, I was very, very fond of him, my brain may be missing it, but I cannot remember Tubby making a mistake. He was just so proficient, so careful, and also, amazingly, very quick. It was something I tried to pick up from him. He had developed a very elegant, quite simple style of lighting. And because it was simple, he could do it very, very fast. You never went behind schedule with Tubby on the, you know, lighting. He just, and I, I really tried to pick that up. That was my big, the, the efficiency. And then I realised how he did it. He did a lot of prep. You know, we weren't paid for it in the BBC, but he'd take his script home, he'd read it, he'd work out how he would like to light the scenes. He'd try and talk to the director beforehand. So when he walked on the floor, he had a plan. Mm-hmm. And in those days, a lot of the BBC cameramen, because we 
we weren't that under pressure to keep the schedule in those days. Um, they didn't go on with a the plan. They sort of worked it out as they went along. But Tubby always arrived with a the plan. Therefore, he was quick because he could exercise the plan. And if, if the director changed their mind, which was perfectly acceptable, directors do that, he could just modify the plan. He had a starting point. And that seemed to me the greatest gift he gave me as a professional, mm -hmm. to walk on the, the studio floor with a plan. It's easy to change a plan. It's damned hard to come up with one if what you expected to happen isn't happening. You're now floundering. Yeah. Um, and I think I took that, that level of efficiency from him. And his way of making a set look beautifully lit with quite a simple lighting scheme, which was very, very clever. I mean, people sometimes thought, oh, you're not using a lot of lamps, is he being lazy? No. If you knew Tubby, the amount, he, he would work out where to put one lamp so carefully he didn't have to put two lamps. Right. You know, it wasn't laziness, it was precision. And I really tried to take that from him. Um, I hope I have. It strikes me as very interesting about the BBC that is that we're talking, we, you know, normally talking about Doctor Who, which was, you know, yes, it's a legend now, but to all intents and purposes, uh, certainly when A. Englander was filmed, Cameron and some of the, the late Patrick Trout and John Pertley stuff, it was, yeah, it was popular, but it was children's tea time it television. Was children's telly, um, some of the cameramen thought it was a little bit beneath them to do children's telly. I never did. I had this weird theory that if you, if you, you know, when I became a cameraman, that's right, I did quite a lot of children's dramas and um, Little Peters because I felt if we educate our children to want high-quality television, when they grow up, they'll want my high-quality television. Mm. And I saw it as part of an education process. You've got to give them good stuff. Mm. Then they'll demand good stuff when they grow up. Um, and Tubby took that view. Once he'd been assigned a job, he did it to the best of his abilities, whatever it was. Yeah. With perhaps one exception, which was filming Esther Ranson in North Road. <laughs> Tubby hated that so much, he would sit in the car and load the magazines and send me out to shoot it. Really? <laughs> Just because he didn't want to be doing it, it? That was the only thing I've ever seen Tubby say, I don't want to do this. <laughs> so, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so, so did you relish the eclecticism of, because as you say, you did Blue Peter, but you did drama as well. And, and, and I, I think some people think, well, drama is where, where proper television is made and magazine style stuff is not as artistic, for certainly for someone yeah. who's pointing a camera at things. You know? for, for, for most of my years in the BBC, I was very lucky. I got, even as an assistant, a, a chunk of drama in the summer, which is where most of it's shot. And I was very happy to be a jobbing BBC cameraman in between because some of the jobbing jobs are absolutely fascinating. I've, I, you know, I've, I've interviewed several prime ministers and the, an American president and just because I was allocated on the, the board with a China Graph pencil, you're doing this tomorrow. I'm fine, you know. It was a fascinating life. Mm -hmm. We were never bored. No. And, and that's quite something in our game, you know. When I went freelance, I was bored half the year because I wasn't working. Yeah, yeah. You know, you earn as much money, but you only work six months a year instead of 12. Funny yeah. old life. It is, isn't it? But those six months are all drama, yeah. which by that stage I decided as a career move I had to do. But that wasn't because I looked down on the other. It's because I've become absorbed and fascinated by the drama. Mm -hmm. I love photographing actors. Yeah. That's a very special thing to be allowed to do. Well, let's talk about some of the actors that you worked on with Doctor Who then. I mean, did you did, did, did do any spring to mind? Did you have uh, I, ooh, I think it was three and four, something like that. Um, Pertwee I worked with. Yeah. 
Um, what a huge character and what fun. I mean, you know, it was just, you, again, it was one of those you couldn't be bored situations. The man always had something to say that made you giggle. Um, and I thought was a fantastic Doctor Who. I liked his sort of style. I liked the, well, it was style, wasn't it? There was a, yeah. there was a lot of style there, which, which uh, I, I thought was fun. Um, and I think he was the Doctor Who that did, we had this, I can't remember what it was called. It, it, it's the famous one where they had the, the, the little small people dressed up in latex suits being gargoyles. Ah, uh, yes, that's the Demons. The Demons, yes. Directed yes. by Christopher Barry. Yes. Um, I remember Mr. Barry. Uh, and we had a couple of interesting moments on that. There was, when the, it all went off at the church, Doctor Who had, by this time, um, sequestered a haywain. Quite what a haywain was doing around at the time, I don't know, but it was a wonderful prop. With one horse out the front. Ah, no, I, I think what you might be doing is you are, because you've been involved in two stories where Doctor Who blows up a church. Yes. So the, the Pertwee one with Christopher Barry was the demons where right. he blew up a church. And then later on, you're where you're director of photography uh, or film cameraman on The Awakening, directed by Michael Owen, Owen Morris. That's where you Five have, Rounds Rapid. That's the, the Five Rounds Rapid is the Pertwee one. Yes, I thought it was. And yeah. then The Awakening, which is the Peter Davison one, that's the one with the horse. Is it? Yeah, where you took... Right, because we're filming from behind at that moment, yeah. so the, the, the pictures in the brain are obviously yeah. not seeing the face of the Doctor Who. Sure. But they, they built this lich gate. Yeah. And uh, they're very impressive lich gate. And they built the, the side panels wide enough that the, the horse handler, the wrangler, could, could hide behind it in the hope of, you know, the troll dog, because Doctor Who's not terribly good at driving a hairween. <laughs> um, drives up, they, he and his assistant jump off, rush through the lich gate, and the horse is standing there and thinking... At this point, we hadn't cut, miraculously, because somewhere it's on film. Um, and the horse thought, oh, I'll have some of that. And the horse got through the lich gate, but the hayway didn't. <laughs> so there's bits of prop lich gate going in every direction as the horse trolls off, and, and he's now dragging his handler behind him as they try to stop this thing. Um, and the, the other church one with the... Um, the little guys in yeah, latex. And, and yes, and you shot five rounds rapid, one of Doctor Who's most famous lines. It yes. wasn't in the script. They'd hid it from the entire crew because they thought it was such a wonderful line. They wanted to see what the crew did when it was said. You know, chat with the wings, five rounds rapid. Corporal Jenkins, chat with the wings, yeah. five rounds rapid. <laughs> Corporal exactly. Jenkins throws him himself across the front of the Land Rover, fires five off, vis effects blow... Five little explosive charges in the latex suit off, and the entire crew is on its knees, hugging its sides, roaring with laughter. Brilliant. Because they'd actually kept that line out of the script. Oh, fabulous. As far as I remember. It wasn't in my script. So we, there was just a, you know, Corporal Jenkins says, dot, 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 because they just wanted to see what happened. And, Brilliant. of course, it is perhaps the most famous line. Yeah. Um, and indeed, I believe one of the actors used that line as the name of his autobiography. Yeah, Nick Courtney, who said, yeah, the Brigadier, bless him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that that was a a brilliant moment. I mean, you know, having seeing winged gargoyles at lunch truck <laughs> <laughs> was quite surreal, even by Doctor Who in, standards. In the village of Oldbourne, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, yeah. it was quite surreal, um, but uh, but good fun. Yeah, uh, very visual, worked a treat, all done for real. Little explosive charges, you know, the the 
the little latex monsters were trailing wires behind them, and you know, the, the Visifex bloke with his box of buttons, uh, and it worked first time. Well, I'm wondering about the, the directors at that, because the idea of a film cameraman sort of choosing the shots sort of takes away from the director's role, in a way, or was it more collaborative? Than it that? was much more collaborative. Um, there were one or two directors from Anke in film department, but I mercifully rarely worked with them as an assistant and certainly tried not to be one when I was a cameraman because I'm, I'm a great believer that the script's the most important thing on the set. Um, so I want to hear what my director's interpretation of the script is before I go and do something stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I think... I mean, directors are a funny breed. They're delightful, but they're, they're, they're strange. Some Some will... Not anymore, really, but in those days, some would say, I want a 25mm lens from here. Um, and as time went on, more of them would say, you know, this is how I want to treat it. Do you have any comments? Um, and later in my freelance career, some of my best-known directors sometimes would block out a scene, then turn to me and say, how would you shoot it, Paul? <laughs> And I, I would know there's a 50-50 chance. Well, there's, there's three options. Either they just want to hear my view, then they'll do it their way. Perfectly acceptable. You know, nice to be consulted. I'm flattered. Secondly, Christ, that's a good idea. And we shoot it my way. And the third way is there's a sort of compromise between the director's original idea and one or two of the shots I've chuffed up that he took quite fancies. Um, any of those ways of working are good. So long as you have a consensus and you're both comfortable working together, you're going to make a good movie. It's not the script's any good. Um, so I don't mind which way they work. Uh, when I was a very young assistant, yes, some of the directors would do the, you know, it's a 25mm lens from here. Um, by the time I was freelance and doing things like Inspector Morse, uh, I had a fabulous operator called Nigel Slatter. Um, and as the director was doing the block out of the action, we discovered that Nigel was one side of the room and I was the other side of the room, and the director, would, when they got used to it, would say, oh, right, so this is the main shot and those are the, re- the, the cut-ins, because we'd have gravitated to the camera positions. We didn't have to say anything. It was just, we think it works well from here. Mm-hmm. And without saying a word, you could give the director a hint, and if they didn't like it, they just ignored where you were. And that's fine. You know, you, you're there to... Um, your supply and support, in a way. Once you've decided what the the action is and where the actors are going to speak the important words, then you try and get a bit of nice light on them where that happens, you know, and and a bit of good composition and make the the ebb and flow of a scene work. I've got to go back to Tubby here because it, it's a slightly old-fashioned way of working. We would think now, but Tubby had this theory that if a scene has been well directed, there's an epicenter of it. And if you put the camera there, you can get most of the shots. A, a well-directed scene will revolve around some position on the set. And it, it's still reasonably true, but because we use more camera angles now than we used to in the sort of 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. that is less true because the directors want more points of observation, which is good. I mean, that's, we, we've, we've slightly over-educated our audience <laughs> they expect <laughs> they expect more of us now, damn it! You know, which is which is great on one hand because it makes the job more interesting, 
Um, but it's more taxing on the other because the schedules haven't got longer, they've got shorter. Mm -hmm. So you've got twice as many shots to do in half the time, as it were. But hey, it works. And I, when I did the um, DVD of, of The Awakening, which you filmed, um, Michael Owen Morris, the director, gave you a lot of credit because um, the opening shot is of, of moving ho of horses galloping feet. And mm. He said that he wasn't sure how he would shoot that, and you gave him a lot of help with that. So Trying to remember. I, I know in those days I was a, a bit of a long lens specialist. Indeed, I owned two long lenses of my own, which I never charged the directors or the producers of BBC for, just because I like using them so much. I managed to find them relatively cheaply. Mm -hmm. And I had them in the car all the time. So I think a lot of that galloping hoos was me saying, well, I've got this 300 mil. Why don't we do it on that? Because you know, panning with them from a distance away makes the focus pulling a bit easier. But it looks stunning, because the foreground and the background are both out of focus. You've just got the hoos. Um, and I, I always had a couple of long lenses on board just because I like occasionally using long lenses. And if you're canny with kit, um, they don't cost a lot of money and they make your life more enjoyable. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, there were instances when people accused me of cheating and one person actually made a formal complaint and I pointed out that I'd, I'd spent all this money of my own. I'd never charged the BBC a penny. And by the way, I could show you one of his invoices for a piece of his kit. <coughs> uh <-huh>. <laughs> Stop <laughs> the inquiry immediately. <laughs> it was just jealousy. But, yeah. I mean, I had a few bits of kit on the, 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 the draft that were mine. And I just, it never occurred to me. I mean, the BBC charging for something that wasn't official. I wasn't brought up that way. Um, I just had them because I had fun with them. Yeah. Oh, and there's a glass shot in that as well. There's a, there's a, there's a, and I hadn't realised until I saw the rushes from the DVD that there's a, there's a sort of lane, and in the back there's the, the head of a church p poking out, and I hadn't realised that that's actually a little painting on glass yeah, right, yeah. that you shoot. We used to, a we used to do glass shots in those days, and the, the the poor old glass artist would come down with a tent the day before sometimes, and and spend all day. Well, we we're off somewhere else shooting, painting this darn thing in with the sort of little tiny bead like you get on a rifle so mm. he, that's where he wants the, the lens um, and it's not quite as simple as that technically you don't just shove the camera there where his bead was has to be the absolute optical center of the lens then if you get that right the perspective looks totally convincing mm -hmm. but you have to bring the kit that you can move a camera a millimeter in every direction till you get absolutely where he painted it from uh, and that's good fun as well yeah uh, so it, I think one of the joys was that we did it. We didn't send it off to Soho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We actually did it, if necessary, in four inches of snow, and we made it work. Um, I think that was good fun. Yeah. And you worked with, with Mike Morris on ten, Tenko. Yeah. You did, and, and that, the idea, again, that, that you, yeah, you make, I mean, the first few episodes. I did the last episode. Yeah. The only cameraman to shoot Tenko that never went abroad. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, uh, you know, Salisbury Plain yeah, for, for, yeah. for the uh, the prison, and then uh, I think it was Portsmouth Dock. They had the Canberra in because it was the only completely white ship. So as long as we didn't shoot above the uh, the gunwales, as it were, it looked like a hospital ship. So we had to do it in the two days they were there, and this is where the uh, the lady at, who's been in prison 
and her husband have got together and they're not getting on terribly well because they've been apart so long and he takes her to the hospital ship for her journey home um, and they were prepared to spend a few bob on this and by this time I was a senior enough cameraman that I was trusted with a few bob so we had a couple of whacking great big lamps to try and make it look like Singapore. And a big crane to put the camera on. Um, and a coolie with a, a, a rickshaw. So, you know, we, we, we start very tight on them, tracking with the crane. And then we go up in the air and reveal the camera and they turn left and pull up alongside the gangplank. And, you know, they, they don't quite kiss goodbye because they're not having a great time in their marriage. And, or, you know, it's not hugely affectionate and she goes up the game plank that's what's in the script which is fine you know. so I've, I've spent quite a few bob here I've got whacking great big lamps you know quite expensive crane they've got loads of extras we, we rehearsals go perfectly and we go for the first take and this rickshaw gives it a bit more welly because you know it's a take and when he gets to the point where he's supposed to turn left and go to the gangplank by this time I'm you know 30 feet in the air with a massive wonderful wide shot that you know one of the most expensively packed with extra shots the BBC's done that year. Um, unfortunately, his rickshaw wheels have got locked in a railway line on the dock, and he turns right, so he disappears out of shot. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen a man more apologetic, and we were just sort of roaring with laughter. He could not turn left. His wheel got stuck in the, 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 the railway lines, and he went right. <laughs> That's that. There's no getting out of it. Um, but yeah, we would, we did a lot of the last episode in in uh, what was a tank training site on Salisbury Plain. So it's it's covered in sand, and we put a fresh layer of sand on top of it because underneath there's still an awful lot of the diesel from the tank. So every night you go home absolutely filthy. We were in some great digs. This lovely lady was putting my camera crew and the sparks up uh, in a B and B, which was a beautiful house. Um, by the time we'd been there a week, the amount of sand we were washing off ourselves had blocked up every single shower. <laughs> Which wasn't terribly popular, but she was awfully nice about it. We did say, you know, we'll pay for the plumber. And, you know, we literally were going home that filthy. Um, and in those days, the cameraman always had a, a, a pan glass, a viewing filter around his neck. Mm -hmm. It was your sort of badge of office that said, I'm God, you know. And on the last day, the ladies, because the barbed wire was real wire, but the barbs were plastic. And the ladies presented me a little official ceremony with a plastic barb and put it on the lanyard of my pan glass. And I wore it for many years <laughs> as my, my trophy from finishing Tenko. <laughs> but it seems an odd contrast, Tenko, Doc 2 drama. You've mentioned Blue Peter, and I, I, I don't think we can leave it there because Blue Peter is another of those great you know, institutions. Oh, it so. was such fun to do. Um, let me think. Probably, I don't know whether the audience remembers it as well as we who shot it remember it, but probably the most famous one was Para Noakes. Mm. Johnny Noakes had, did not have the fear gene. It just, he wouldn't even have known it if you'd thrown it at him. So they decided that um, recently the been a record for the highest skydive and they decided that Johnny was going to break the record for the highest civilian skydive this guy had fallen out of airplane at 50,000 feet 
Johnny was going to do it at 52,000 feet. I mean, they're only going to let Johnny jump from 52,000 feet once. Mm. Um, so we've, we've got a lot of preparation going on. So they've got Johnny on a, a radio mic that the sound recorder swears blind. We've worked with the RAF very closely that we can hear Johnny from the moment he comes out of the aeroplane. And we can hear all the other six. So they gave me a feed. So I'm standing on the back of an open Land Rover on Salisbury Plain with a pair of headphones on, listening to what's going on at 52,000 feet. And the idea is that the driver, the RAF driver of the Land Rover also has a headphone and he will drive me to where Johnny's going to land. Now, it doesn't sound terribly likely, does it? From 52,000 feet, the accuracy is not going to be that good. Um, the first thing that happens is I, I can't see any of them because we can't. And then I see six red smoke canisters go off. Incidentally, you can't pull your chute until you're at 10,000 feet or you die. You've only got enough oxygen to skydive speed to 10,000 feet. If you pull your chute too early, you'll run out of oxygen and die. So it's, it's a bit of an interesting moment for those boys up there. Mm. You know? um, and Johnny, who's slightly mad as a hatter, hasn't got the fear gene. It was a bit of a worry, you know. They, they were going to keep a very close eye on his tag for the oxygen, and I, there's no yellow, no, no yellow smoke, and there's no yellow smoke, and there's no yellow smoke, and then my earphones go ballistic as all these six red devils, um, effing and blinding doesn't even come into it, are trying to get to Johnny's ankle because he's forgotten to pull his smoke canister ring out. So there's six of them bumping into each other at 50,000 feet, <laughs> trying to get to Johnny's ankle. And eventually, we see yellow smoke. And the, the star forms, because they've got it all working, and everything happens beautifully. And they get to 10,000 feet, and seven parachutes go off. And by this time, I'm hanging on to the sides of, of a Land Rover. My assistant is hanging on to my camera. And we're, at some speed, going across Salisbury Plain, which ain't flat. Mm. trying to get to where Johnny lands. Now, the other thing you have to take into account, I, I love Johnny dearly. I have had such fun with him. But he wasn't very good at remembering lines. So, we... I don't know what words we're allowed to use on your radio program. I'll try and be slightly discreet. Um, we actually, I actually managed to get within 20 feet of where Johnny lands, which is unbelievable. I mean, the... Directors wetting themselves that we've got that close. Camera's running. Johnny does a perfect barrel roll, scoops up his chute, turns the camera and says, thank Christ it's you, Paul. <laughs> oh, no, Johnny! We spent the next two hours with Johnny jumping off the top of a Land Rover, trying to get his words right when he lands in front of the camera. <laughs> 52,000 feet and he forgets his lines. I suppose it's excusable. <laughs> And, um, I mean, you, you, you mentioned um, Inspector Morse. I mean, that was the show that, that you know, I mean, went and, and is famous for its beautiful uh, cinematography. I was extraordinarily lucky. I, I made this huge decision to leave the BBC with tremendous regret because it had been, I mean, I have no education. Um, my career's master somewhere around 14 years old, said, Wheeler, what the hell are we going to do with you? The only things you're any good at is photography. I said, quite. And <laughs> <laughs> left the room, basically. Um, I, I, I arrived at the BBC with, with a huge amount of enthusiasm. Luckily, because my family had been in the business a bit, quite a lot of knowledge about making movies. I went on a film set the first time when I was eight years old. 
um, and fell in love. I mean, you know, by nine, I wanted to be a cameraman. I decided that of all those wonderful people I'd seen, I wanted to be the cameraman. Not that I really understood what it was then. Um, and decided to go freelance, decided I wanted to dedicate my life to drama, not because I thought all the other things I'd done, the Blue Peters and the Doctor Whos, were, were inferior in any way, but I decided that I got halfway through my career life and I wanted to do some more serious drama and probably the only way I was going to do that because the BBC sort of shared it out was to become a freelance drama camera. Mm -hmm. um, went outside. Before I actually walked out the gate for the last time, um, I'd been offered a thing, the, the, I think the third or fourth series in Invocation of the Saint, which was fairly dreadful. I didn't know that when I took the job. But I was only doing, I think, two episodes. While I was doing those episodes, my agent got this phone call. Um, and I was being interviewed for Inspector Morse. And the reason, as I understand it, there may be lots of people who tell me it was different, but I only got my side of the version. But they'd done three series, and it was a little bit based on John Thor's previous character, so it was a bit gritty. I'm doing parenthesis here. Mm -hmm. And they decided that the series had legs, and the way to do it was to make it slightly more glossy. And in their minds, he would have had a promotion. So his suits would be slightly better, his ties would be slightly better, but they still wouldn't match. Um, but of course you can't promote him because it's Inspector Morse. But the whole idea was that to keep to give it legs, they could make it just a, go from the gritty to slightly glossier. And they were looking for a cameraman who could do that, and apparently they decided on me, uh, which was just, you know, the saint disappeared off the face of the earth and nobody ever remembers it, thank God. Um, so everybody remembers I walked out the BBC and did two years of Inspector Morse. I mean, reputation made. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we could safely say that the core of my career has been luck. Uh, yeah, okay, I, I work hard. I must have a little bit of talent, but I've been bloody lucky. You know, every time, I mean, that, I left the BBC for entirely the wrong reasons, what turned out to be exactly the right moment. But I didn't know that. When I left, I got the lecture. You do realize, Paul, that when you resign from the BBC, you'll never work for us again. We're not being evil, that's just BBC policy. That applies to everybody in every grade. If you resign, you burnt your boats. And I said, yep, I understand that. And four years later, four or five years later, the BBC was shutting down makeup department, wardrobe department, design department, construction, film departments being taken to bits. They had no, by, by six or seven years after I left, there wasn't a single service department left in the BBC. All the BBC dramas were being made by independent producers. And of course, those independent producers had to put their cast list up for BBC and the BBC would love a cameraman they recognised the name of. So within six or seven years, most of my work, contrary to the lecture I've been given before leaving, indirectly was for the BBC. Not for the BBC. Uh, second, third career suddenly blossoming in front of me. Whew. Well, we met, we met talking about, you know, science fiction and Doctor Who, but you... you 
seem to be specialising in um, in filming Shakespeare. For, you know, for, for Trevor Nunn and you know, Spokeshave, yes, yeah, um, as, as 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 good as Shakespeare. But you're taking a theatrical production yes. and turning it into that was a that was a huge amount of luck. Um, I'm not quite sure where it happened. It's died now because they put five cameras in a theatre and broadcast it live by fibre optic to all the cinemas. Mm. But in those days, that wasn't available, so they had to film it. I had also become involved with Panavision um, in introducing high definition to Europe. I literally opened the box at Panavision Greenford of the first HD camera ever to arrive in Europe. And that subsequently caused me to write the book on high definition. They were slightly cautious about HD, though I flogged it like hell but lost my pitch. So we did it on DigiBeta, which as things turned out was, for the, for the sales area it went to, was more than acceptable. Um, and then up turns, um, Sir Ian McKellen, giving us his leer, mm. as they say. So I've now got a Lord of the Realm in the lead and a Lord of the Realm as one of the directors. <laughs> Interesting situation. Fortunately, they got on very well. And I thought it was a brilliant way to work. I've, I've worked, I've been very, very lucky. I've worked with a lot of theatre directors. And for some reason, I adore working with them. They are so good at script and actors. Vastly better than most film directors. And my job is to photograph script and actors. And because I seem to get on with them reasonably well, they'll rely on me a little bit. And that's a tremendous compliment when you've got people like <laughs> Trevor Nunn, for God's sake, ah. saying, what shot do I need, Paul? First one I did with him, it was, a, you know, sort of, Mr. Lou, <laughs> I've just had a Lord of the Realm ask me what shot to do. <laughs> he had a Lord of Time in that one as well, because Sylvester McCoy was the first Oh, he was, he was lovely. <laughs> we, we hung him, Yeah, of course. The senior props man on that was an ex-BBC senior props man, who I'd known for years. And he decided that the rig that um, Sylvester was going to use to be dropped. He said, well, I'm the, I'm the senior bloke on this. They better hang me first. And I thought, good man. That's really professional. I mean, it was a bit, it, it, it always played slightly sort of, you know, dare I say it, the wide boy, but he wasn't. He was a real professional underneath and I'd always known that for years and years and years. A slight veneer of, you know, but underneath the business. So they rigged him in this and he, he's up there on the, on the scaffold, you know. And he's just, wait, Paul. I said, yes, mate. He said, you got your still camera? I said, always. He said, well, get a shot of this. My wife's always want to see me hung. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. I mean, that was the atmosphere on the set. It was, it was really a team effort. I mean, everybody was pulling their weight. Um, I had some fabulous film crew. I mean, absolutely well, you've sort of headed off a question I was going to ask that I was, that I was very conscious of when asking a, a cinematographer. Is of course, your job more than any has been affected by changes in technology. Oh yeah. Uh, but you you seem to embrace those. Well, I think it's slightly a family thing. Um, my granddaddy joined a company two years after the very first moving picture had ever been shown in London in Regent Street at the at the Poly. As a apprentice engineer and ended up making some very famous cameramen cameras <coughs> as the works manager <coughs> as a couple of his 
prototypes in the Science Museum. You know, I mean, it, Dad went into Kodak, um, had an incredible time during the war where he, he seemed to become the bloke who designed aerial cameras and aerial photography and designed the technique that got the first shots of Berlin at night without having to drop parachutes because the they always wanted photographs of how well they'd done. So the wheelers have always sort of had a look at what's new. And if we like it, we'll have a go. If we don't like <laughs> it, we'll just reject it. So when HD came up and Panavision said, look, you're the only bloke we know, because I'd done, I'd, by that time I'd <coughs> slightly showing off, as if I hadn't done that already. I'd won two awards for digital cinematography with DigiVita. Mm-hmm. They said, well, you're the only bloke you know who speaks film and speaks digits. Will you come and tr- help us introduce high def? Um, we'll buy you out for a third of your life so you can still be a cameraman. Brilliant deal. So I ended up introducing high def around Europe, which to me, when we put the first camera up, and it's a hugely expensive 24-inch monitor, we literally put it up in the car park of Panavision Greenford on a sunny day, looked at the monitor, and the three of us who had been sort of Peter, Paul, and Harry, that's Peter Swarbrick, myself, um, and Alan Piper, who was technical director of Panavision at the time. He had a beard, that's why Peter, Paul and Harry. Um, <clears throat> we looked at the monitor and said, God almighty, that's beautiful. We just lost all our preconceptions and all our sort of anti-digits because the picture on the monitor was gorgeous. And as technicians, you can't overcome that. Mm-hmm. Once you've seen a beautiful picture, you've got to go with it. Um, so yeah, but I, but I was slightly brought up to be inquisitive about the new and make my own decision as to whether to take it on board or reject it. So I was very lucky with that, that when the big one turned up and I saw this lovely picture, I just said, yep, I'll have some of that. It's gorgeous. And it was a lot cheaper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I more or less retired now, um, and I've gone back to still photography because I can't, I can't stop taking pictures. Mm-hmm. That's impossible. And I've gone back to film, and I, to make life difficult, I now we take a lot of pictures on a thing called a Pentax 6x7, which shoots a huge negative on 120 film. And I have digital cameras. When I press the button on the digital camera, it costs me nothing. Once I bought the camera, zero. Yeah. When I press the button on my Pentax 67, I spend pound fifty. But you take better pictures because you don't half think about it before you spend pound <laughs> fifty. <Yeah. laughs> it's human psychology. If it's going to cost you something, you take care. Mm-hmm. Well, look, you've got, this has cost you a lot of your time. I'm no, very I'm, grateful, I'm very grateful. I hope it's been the kind no, of thing been, you wanted. It's been absolutely fantastic. You said there weren't many stories you could tell about Faulty Towers before we started recording. Are there any? <laughs> well, I, I did threaten to stop the show. You know when the cat is supposed to have swallowed the poisoned but, piece of meat? Yeah. I was a cameraman on that. and They had to get the cat to throw up because he, he does throw it up, and therefore everybody thinks the cat's dead, and there's hoover owls, and of course the cat's alive. It's, it's just thrown it up like a fur ball, and yeah. got on with life, but they haven't noticed this. Um, and they had this old geezer with a cat who was stuffing dry mustard down its throat to make it choke. Uh, and uh, the team were in their usual, you know, 14 takes minimum mode, and it got to nine takes. Now, I... Uh, I, I'm a great cat lover. I can't have a cat in this flat because it's not allowed up until moving to this flat. 
I've been very, very fond of cats. I have a particular love of them. And I was getting quite hot under the collar. And the strange thing is, and a lot of things that happen in my life with the BBC, is that you, as the cameraman, are frequently the most senior member of BBC staff on set. So you're the BBC expected you to carry a certain amount of responsibility because above you were all freelancers. You know, the director, mm -hmm. producer, actors. So you, you had not necessarily wanted, but you had a certain authority that you, the BBC expected you to exercise. And on, after the eighth take, I faced up the director and Mr. Cleves and said, I'll give you one more take and then I'm going home. Or I'm phoning the RSPCA. Your choice, gentlemen. This is cruel. This is beyond cruel. And they sort of started spluttering. I went behind the camera and said, one take. And I thought, I'm going to get fired. Well, I'm going to get fired off this job. They won't get me fired from the BBC, but I'm going to be off this job. They did the one take, and it wasn't successful. Uh, and I said, right, we move on, or I phone? And they said, we move on. Well, director did, and Mr. Cleese sort of got rather bright red. And uh, the following day, they brought a vet in with a new cat. And he has got the cat in his arms. The cat's obviously very happy. And we set the first thing in the day, we set this shot up again. And I'm obviously being stared at like boring eyes, you know. And he gets this little piece of paper that looks like a um, oh, roll-up cigarette paper. Mm -hmm. And he taps a little bit of powder down the cat's throat and strokes its throat. And the cat's still perfectly happy. Puts it into shot. Got camera running, obviously, before it goes into shot. The cat goes, <coughs> slowly walks out of shot, jumps into the vet's arms, and starts purring. Cut, says the director. And I thought, bugger this, I'm going to have my moment of glory. And I said, Would you like another take? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was evil, but they deserve it. Mm -hmm. They had treated that previous cat so badly. Mm -hmm. um, but it, you know, it's. In those days, we weren't so conscious about mistreating animals. I mean, we're talking a long time ago, mm -hmm. and it hadn't been popular to put no animals were mistreated in the making of this movie on the end at that time. Yeah, They obviously hadn't done anything permanent to cat, but I felt they got to the point where it was just cruelty, and I wasn't having that. Yeah. Um, but nobody else on the set could have done that. And that was, that was a very strange thing about being a BBC cameraman, you were the BBC's representative a lot of the time. The first thing I did outside, I still felt I had to sort of influence some power. We had the most wonderful first AD, real old-fashioned Sergeant Major, first AD. First day, his assistant comes up and offers him a walkie-talkie. He says, if I need that, the buggers aren't listening. Take that damn thing away. He got a real Sergeant Major's voice. And by mid-morning on the first day, I'd done something, sort of trying to be what I thought was helpful. And he just put his arm around me, walked me to the side and said, look, Paul, let's get this sorted. I know you're ex-BBC and I know you buggers. He said, your job is to be a bleeding artist. My job is to be aided. I said, OK. Never interfered again the rest of my career. Brilliant advice. That was the difference between being in the BBC and being the BBC's representative in a way. Mm -hmm. and being outside, you just hired the camera. Much nicer. Um, you've told me off mic, but it, it helps to hear it from you. What is your charity that you'd like the listeners to donate to? I'd like them to donate to Macmillan Nurses, please. Um, 14 years ago, I had cancer. Uh, mercifully, there, there's no effects now, but it was a bit grim at the time. 
And although the doctors saved my life, the nurses saved my sanity. They were Very brilliant. Good. The final question is, we, we meet towards the back end of the 50th year of Doctor Who, which is the sort of spur for this uh, enterprise that has taken us to all sorts of other realms as well. Uh, and I'm very grateful to you for, for, for doing that. It's been so a pleasure. What is your message to the listening Doctor Who fans out there on this 50th year of Doctor Who? Don't expect anything. It will always surprise. Brilliant. Well, look, Paul Wheeler, for a fascinating chat. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. That was brilliant. Thanks to Paul. Uh, I couldn't cut any more of that. It's such good stuff. So uh, I hope that's got you through a long journey. Or however it is you listen to these. Paul's charity is Macmillan Nurses. Uh, they can be found at www.macmillan.org.uk. Uh, here's a quick preview of next week's who's round but in the meantime thanks for listening and thanks to paul bye bye after a while it kind of got boring because i'd always only be cast if if there was a girl if there was a character uh, of an indian uh young girl waiting to get married uh having an arranged marriage or you know uh, trying to run away from home dead. Mr. Jones is dead. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Torchwood, fall to earth. Is there anything else I can help you with, Mr. Jones? Stop this thing crashing. Mr. Jones? Look, all calls are recorded for training purposes, yes? Yes. I'm telling the truth. I really am on Ephraim Salt Sky Puncher. Something has gone wrong, and the one person who can help me is you. Mr. Jones. If you don't end this recording services, you are going to become world famous for all the wrong reasons. I am sorry, Mr. Jones. I'm going to have to terminate this call. No! No! Love stories. Right. Currently, I'm feeling up a Big Brother winner. <laughs>